0: You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that
1: this encourages you in the Lord.
0: Well, thank you, Praise Ensemble. Uh, I tell you one thing that they're doing right is they put the good-looking people on the front to hide those in the back. It don't look so good, so uh, they're smart in that way, and I appreciate them. Them doing that. Well, I'm glad you're here, and I uh, you're a uh, encouragement to me to be here, and I know you're encouragement to others, and I hope you're enjoying these Wednesday nights. Uh, the teaching's been pretty fair, but the food's been great, uh, <laughs> and I'm glad of that. Being one who probably uh, won't be that great tonight, but anyway, I'm thankful to uh, echo the pastor's appreciation. All all you who are working and serving and um, thank you for doing that i want to, uh i want to make a recommendation bookwise tonight before uh before we get into our study uh you're familiar already uh because the others have referred to it and it's been our guide for teaching the beauty of divine grace and if you haven't got that book yet I would highly recommend it It would be good for you to read that and follow up after our series is over but I also want to recommend another book that would be a great complement to that. It's called The Heart of the Reformation. And it, just like the first book, it's available through uh, Ligonier.org. It's a 90-day devotional book. It's written succinctly. Uh, you can read each day fairly quick. And at the end of each day's reading, it gives you an application. And it is an analysis of the five solos that we've been studying uh, this month. So i just pass it on to you for a uh, uh, in a way of recommendation, okay. All right, let's uh, let's have a, a word of prayer uh, before we begin our study. And Father, you know our uh, absolute, total dependence on your Holy Spirit when it comes to uh, understanding and absorbing and and even applying uh, the truths of your Word. And so we just ask tonight, dear God, that you would do that uh, for your glory. Uh, And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if Scripture alone, as Brad so faithfully taught us, is the authority, the the ultimate authority on, on God and on us, then we know that salvation, as Daniel taught us, Is only comes to us as a gift. Uh, That's what God's grace is. In fact, the two words are interchangeable. Uh, It comes to us from grace, and it comes to us, uh, as Daniel so uh, well put it in the book, puts it, it's not just unmerited favor, it's demerited favor. Uh, It's not only that we don't deserve grace, we deserve something else other than grace uh, from God. And then, as uh, Dr. Nelson did so, profoundly last Wednesday night, we know that it comes to us uh, through the element of faith. But as he said, it's not faith in just anything. It's not faith in faith. It's faith in the right object, in the right object as a person. And that's what we want to consider tonight in the time we have together is that faith has to be in Christ and Christ alone. I want to read to you a paragraph and one of the lines I I think will be on the screen for you uh, from the book uh, The Beauty of Divine Grace is found on page 66 if you have your book with with you and follow through it's the last paragraph of that page and the author says we come to probably the most offensive of the five solas Christ alone one scholar gives a succinct definition of Solus Christus, Christ's identity is absolutely exclusive and His work entirely sufficient. Not only was this claim distasteful in Jesus' context, but also the idea that there's only one way to be saved is perhaps the one intolerable belief in our modern world, which prides itself on tolerating anything and everything, both in the past and in our current experience, solus Christus will cause offense wherever it is proclaimed. In other words, salvation in Christ alone rubs against most people. But in the sentence that that was given to you on the screen, basically the author says this. He says, salvation is in Christ and Christ alone because of who Jesus is and what He has done His work. So before we get to our text, I want to give you sort of a cliff notes version of that very truth. Who is Jesus? And what has he done? Currently in our clubhouse with the children on Sunday mornings, we're going through a uh, section that asks the big picture question, is Jesus God or is Jesus human? And the answer the boys and girls are learning is this, that as the Son of God, Jesus is both. Fully God and fully human. The reality, folks, is that the eternal Son of God was not born in a manger in Bethlehem. He was eternal. The Son of God has always been. There's never never been a time when He was not. But this second person of the Godhead did, in Bethlehem, take on flesh. And he took on the name Jesus, which means Jehovah saves. John puts it this way in the first chapter of the gospel, verse 14. He says, and the Word, which comes from the Greek term logos, which means the ultimate truth, which Jesus is. It says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the reality is that the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man has been debated ever since Christ came to earth. In fact, in in AD 451, there was a council, an ecumenical, I hope I said that right, council, that came together to debate that very thing. Who is this Jesus? What is his nature? Is he God or is he man? And I won't read the whole definition that came out of that council, but I do want to read some of the high points of it, which says this. In the one person of Christ are united a true human nature... And a true divine nature without confusion, mixture, division, or separation. Christ was and remains the God-man. Now you may be sitting there and say,'t why, why, you, you know, why are you spending time on that? Because if He was not who He is in that sense there would be no salvation. Jesus had to be fully God, fully man. He had to be fully God and fully man at all times. There was never a time in His life when He was one or the other. There was never any confusion. There was never any division. He was at all times and to this time fully God and fully man. If He had not been that, if that was not who He was, He could not accomplish Three necessary tasks that had to be accomplished for him to be the Savior, for him to bring us salvation. The first task that Jesus had to accomplish when he came and took on flesh was he had to meet God's standard. And that standard is perfect obedience to God the Father. When God created mankind, he gave this standard. You're familiar, most of you, with the, the account in Genesis. In the garden, where the Scripture says in chapter 2 of Genesis, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it, keep it, and the Lord God commanded, He didn't give him an option, He commanded the man, saying, You can eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. So God set the standard for eternal life. God set the work. And the work was perfectly obey me. Just do what I've said. Trust me and obey my command. And we all know that the fruit, forbidden fruit was eaten. The standard was not met for man. And so for, for Christ to bring us salvation, He has to meet that standard. God didn't drop the standard just because Adam sinned. He didn't remove the standard. The standard was still there. And it had to be met. And it had to be met by man because the command was given to man. Thus Jesus, the eternal Son of God, comes and takes on flesh and He is fully man. However, only a man without a sinful nature, could meet the standard and obey God. And so that's why Jesus not only was fully human, but He had to be fully God. You see, Jesus, we know, was not born of the seed of man. The incarnation, the birth, the birth, the birth through a virgin, is not something we can wrap our minds around and fully understand, but it is a truth that we must believe. It was not the seed of a man that was put in Mary's womb. The Bible makes it clear it was the work of the Holy Spirit. The angel uh, told Joseph, he said, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her, listen to this, is from the Holy Spirit. So Jesus had to accomplish the task of meeting god's standard of perfect obedience and he could only do that as fully god fully man the second task jesus had to take care of was the penalty for man's sin you see not only did god not drop the standard god didn't just overlook the offense and he can't overlook the offense because it would violate his character he can't just push it aside and many people struggle with that they say how you know how can a loving god Punish us how, how come he can't just forgive us? Well if he just forgave us without the penalty being paid again he would violate who he was because not only is God a loving God, the Bible makes it clear God is a just God. The scales have to be set straight. you know uh, I take my great-grandson often to the playground and and at one of the playgrounds we go to there's a seesaw in the playground you know? And, and you you familiar with a seesaw. You know, one gets on one side and one gets on the other side, and the heavy one punch the other up, or one's strong. You, you, you got the gist of it. But if that seesaw was perfectly balanced and the weight and distribution was just like it should be, that seesaw would sit straight. In courtrooms sometimes you see what's called the scales of justice. Well Jesus couldn't just overlook our sin, because the scales of justice would be unbalanced, be an offence to his character. So Jesus had to take care of that penalty. In Ezekiel eighteen four it says this God speaking to Ezekiel says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. And since the Bible makes it clear that all have sinned, then all of us stand guilty before God. And we're going to suffer the wrath of God unless someone else takes our punishment for us. And that someone else cannot be just any man. Because when you read in the Old Testament, God gave strict orders and directions about any sacrifice that was brought to Him for sin. And the instruction was it has to be an unblemished lamb. There's salvation in Christ alone, folks, because only Jesus is the unblemished lamb. Fully God, fully man, yet without sin. As 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him, talking of Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God of God you see it's not just the cross it's not just death on a cross it's who died on that cross that brings salvation the unblemished lamb of God and only he could do it and he had to be not only fully man he had to be fully God because listen both in meeting the standard and in taking the penalty if he had did that just as man then the standard he met and the penalty he paid would just be applicable to him. But since he is also fully God, he's infinite. So that means that the standard he met and the penalty he paid can be given and imputed to anybody who puts their trust in him. Very important who, God, who Jesus is. Very, very important. And then a the third task that Jesus had to accomplish for our salvation is this. He had to bring and be able to give new life. You see, the Scripture makes it clear that when we come to Christ in faith that our old man dies. Well, it would be no good if Jesus came and all He could do for us was put to death our old man. We'd still be dead. But we have to be raised to a new life. And that's what Jesus did in His resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is different from those who were raised from the dead it, it, in, described in the Scripture by Jesus like when He raised Lazarus and the apostles in Acts. We read how uh, Peter uh, was used of God to, to, and God raised the person. But those resurrections were temporary. Those people, Lazarus ultimately did die. The young lady that was raised to life, she did ultimately die. But here's the good news. The fully God, fully man, he died. He was put in the grave. But as we sang a while ago, the grave couldn't hold him. He's alive. And he sits at the right hand of God. And so when we trust in Jesus, not only do we have our sins forgiven, not only does our dead, does our old man die, but we're raised to newness of life. Scripture says it like this in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Folks, the good news of the gospel is the second Adam accomplished what the first Adam blew. And when the first Adam blew it, so did we. But praise God, the second Adam has come and He's fully God, and He's fully man, and He's still alive. And He accomplished what was needed for our salvation. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time looking at our text that the pastor wrote, uh, read, excuse me, in John chapter 14. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Uh, I don't know if this will be up on, on the screen or not, but that's where we're going to spend the remainder of our time. You know... When the Scriptures were recorded, when God breathed out His Word in it, and, the, and the, the people who wrote it down and recorded it in, in the different ways on whatever they could, sometimes on stone, sometimes on uh, something like a, a scroll, a papyrus paper, something like that. You know that, that when the original Scriptures were written, there were no chapters, numbers. And there were no verse numbers, okay? That's something that over the years, as the Scripture was translated into the English language and the other languages and so forth, that was added for our ease of reading. And the reason I take time to, to, I'm not trying to impress you with that, but what I want you to know is when you read John 14, you need, to, to really get the feel of it, you have to realize that chapter 13 is part of the same conversation. And in this passage, I'm not interested tonight that you necessarily get a lot of theological understanding, but I want you to soak this passage up tonight. Now, what I just shared with you is so essential to what Jesus did. And His nature had to be. But I want you to know that Jesus is not only an outstanding necessary Savior from a theological standpoint. I want you to see in the text tonight the heart of Jesus. I want you to see the, the, the greatest demonstration of Jesus' love was Him allowing Himself to be put on the cross. But He did that because He loves you. Now I try to tell the boys and girls and remind them very, as, as often as I can, Jesus didn't die on the cross because he's mad at you and me. He died on the cross because he loves you. He loves you. He loves me. And it comes across so good in these chapters, so... Let me share some things that happens in chapter 13 so you can sense the heart of Christ, I hope, in chapter 14. In the first 17 verses of chapter 13, Jesus, of course, is in the upper room with the disciples. In just a few short hours, He's going to be arrested. And within a very short period of time, He's going to be put on the cross. And so he has this last Passover meal with them. In the first 17 verses, he watches the one who is fully God and fully man. The one who spoke the world into being gets down and watches nasty, dirty Ugly, offensive feet of grown men and dries them. And then he gets back up. And he says, what I've done, you do. It teaches them about being a servant. And then the scripture tells us in verses 18 through 30 verse 13 that Jesus reveals to these men that one of them is going to betray him and the scripture says he's listen he's troubled in his spirit and the term that's translated trouble there means he's very torn he's 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 he shook with inside he, he rattled it, it it's it's like it's it's almost breaking his heart that one of these even though he knew from the beginning one of these who have followed him for almost three years who he calls a friend, is about to betray him. And it says he's troubled in his spirit. Then in verses 31 through 35, Jesus tells these men that he's about to be glorified and he's going to a place, listen, they can't come. And he commands them to love one another. And then in the last part of 13, before we get in 14, Peter, of course, when he hears that he can't go, he's irate about that. What do you mean I can't go? I'll lay down my life for you, Jesus. Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me. Three times. Now folks, I want you to try to understand tonight where these people were. They they have followed this man. They, they They left their living. They left their homes. They left their family. They left pretty much everything that they could call theirs To follow this man because they believed he was the Messiah, the promised king. They expected to follow him all the days of their life. They expected him to set up a kingdom here on earth where they could rule and reign with him. And now he sits in this upper room with them and says, I'm going, I'm leaving, and you can't come. He knows, listen, Jesus, listen, hear me tonight. Jesus is a personal Savior. Now, you may have come to faith in Christ or expressed faith to Christ in a in a crusade of some kind or a revival service like I did. And there might have been many people who came forward and placed their faith in Christ. And listen, you know, I'm not saying that Jesus, Jesus could say if a hundred... A hundred folks who needed Christ walked through these doors. He could save them all at once, just like that. But He would save them one on one. He knows you if you're His child. He, He doesn't just know you're one of His. He knows your heart. And He knew these disciples' heart. And He knew they were troubled. He understood that. And so He opens up in verse 1 and He says... Let not your hearts be troubled. I know I've thrown something heavy at you, Jesus is thinking. I know right now you're confused. I know right now you you have doubts. I know right now you have questions. I know right now for some of you, your world has just been rocked when I told you I was going and you couldn't come. But He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. There was no question they believed in God. They were Jewish. They'd been taught about Jehovah their whole life. They knew more about God than probably any of us in here as far as Jehovah's concerned. But Jesus said, Listen, you believe in Jehovah. You believe in God. Then, listen, take your troubled heart and believe In me also because belief in Christ is the cure it's the only cure for a troubled heart whatever the circumstances whatever the pain it's real I know it hurts the confusion is real the desperation is real that loss cuts deep But Jesus says, believe also in me. Then he goes on to give them other assurance. He says, God the Father has a house with many rooms. Look at what he says, verse 2. "In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. So he tells them, look, there's a room. And, And listen, he's telling them, when you get to the Father's house, there will not be a no vacancy sign in the front yard there will be a room ready. And he goes on to say, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. You know, I used to read that verse and I heard preachers preach on it. And I've even probably said the same stupid thing myself. But when Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, I, you know, I've heard some say, you know, Jesus gone up there and he's going he's to have the lamp stand in the right place and the floor swept and the walls right up." That's not what Jesus is talking about. When he says, I go to prepare a place for you, what he's talking about is cross. I'm going to the cross. I'm going, listen, I'm going to get the room vacant for you. In my Father's house, there are many rooms, and there's room for you if you will just believe. And not only is there a room, but he says, I'm going to come back myself and get you. Let that sink in. Jesus is coming back, folks. I don't know what it's going to be tonight. Tonight will be a great night as far as I'm concerned. It may be thousands of years from now. But He's coming. And when He comes, He's going to get His children. He's going to get those who have believed in Him. And then He goes on in verse... Let's look at Thomas's response in verse 4. And you know the way to where I'm going, Jesus says. And Thomas said to Him, Lord, we do not know where you're going, How can we know the way? Have you ever heard the phrase, you can't get there from here? You ever use that phrase? You know, I'm told, I did a little study on that phrase, and it originated in New England. And the reason it originated in New England, I've never been there. I hope to get to go sometime. But in New England, I'm told that the way the roads and everything are set up out there, it's almost impossible to get a direct direct route from one town to another. And so when they're asked, "How do you get there?" they say, "You can't get there from here." Can't get it. Well, that's kind of where Thomas was. Lord, we don't even know where you're going. Now think about it, folks. Put your, as much as you can. Put, your place in, put yourself in Thomas's shoes. There, there were no interstates then. There was no public transportation. There wasn't no Siri you could get on the phone to tell you to take a ride at the next light and all this and that. Travel was difficult, especially if you were going to a place for the first time. And the only thing you had to go by was, you know, look for this river or look for this mountain or or, or look for this forest and so forth. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How in the world can we know the way? And here's the good news of the Gospel. Verse 6. Jesus said to him. And folks, I don't believe he said this to Thomas. I, I, I don't believe, I, I don't have any way of knowing because we're not privileged to that. But I don't believe that Jesus said it in a condemning way. I believe with a heart of love for Thomas who he knew was troubled and all the others. I'm the way. Jesus said, I am the way. Thomas, you don't have to fret. You don't have to worry about landmarks. You don't have to worry about where I'm going. I'm going to the Father. I am the way. In our book, The Beauty of Divine Grace, there's a quote in there from Dr. Sinclair Ferguson. And he says, he says this. He says, this, this question that Thomas posed to Jesus about the way the answer that Jesus gives him answers the question posed by the whole of the Old Testament found, found in Psalm 24, 3 when the psalmist says this, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? You see, folks, the most important question, the most important question that could ever be asked is how does mankind... Get to God the Father, and Jesus said, "The way is a person, and the person is me. I'm the way." And Jesus tells him, "says I'm the truth." You know, in John chapter eighteen, there's a there's a record of Pilate and Jesus in a conversation before Jesus is going to be put before the people to be crucified, and Pilate, being a political person, he asked Jesus about his kingship. He says, so, so you're a king? And basically Jesus says, yes, you said so, but, but listen what the Scripture says. In Jesus' response, he said, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness, listen, to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate's reply was, What is truth? What is truth? You know, that, that seems to be a question that we can't answer these days in our society. You know, we, we, it, truth is, is relative. You know, what's, what's true for you may not be true for me. You know, uh, science, science has, has risen to such a level that say if you can't prove it in an experiment then we don't know if it's true. In in Lawyers and judges, you know, you have to present hard evidence to to prove a case. Well, listen, Jesus says, I'm the truth. Jesus is not an experiment in a test tube. Jesus is truth itself. Truth is a person and His name is Jesus. And the evidence for Jesus being the Son of God, the Savior fully God and fully man, there's more evidence to support that claim than any other historical figure that's ever been born. Truth is not relevant. There is a standard. And how much does God love us to let us know the truth? He doesn't keep us in the dark. We don't have to wonder how do we get to God. He sent His Son to show us He is the truth. And I've got to close, but finally Jesus says, I am the life. I want to read a passage to you from John chapter 7. i have to close out with this. I ain't got a lot of time to say a lot about it. But listen, John chapter 7, verse 37 the Feast of Booth, Jerusalem is Jerusalem is full, full to the pack. At these annual Jewish feasts, Jerusalem, uh, Jewish people would come from everywhere. And, and Jerusalem was thousands and thousands of people there. And listen to what it says in John 7:37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, the ending day, kickoff time, people everywhere, Jesus stands up and cries out, that term cried means he shouted to the top of his voice with thousands of people surrounded. And he said, if any one thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. You remember when Jesus met the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman? And he asked her to get him a drink. And she said, What are you, a Jew, even having a conversation with me, a Samaritan? And beside that, Women don't talk to men. you remember what Jesus told her? He said, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd ask me for water. Because the water I give you, you don't thirst again. Why in the world do we go so many other places to get water that don't satisfy? If I just made more money, if I just married to somebody different, if I just had this job, If my kids just behave like they do, you're looking for water in the wrong place. (laughs) Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, when we believe in Him, His Spirit comes within us and dead bones come to life and we're raised from the dead and living waters flow and we don't ever have to be thirsty again. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life, Jesus said. There's no other way to the Father. The chapter in the book closes with a prayer. And I had the privilege years ago to hear that prayer spoken by the man who wrote it. And I want to close out our time tonight. I want you to have that privilege. Some of you probably heard it. Some of you won't. But I think it'll be a worshipful time for you. And after it's over, I'll close, you, close us in prayer. So, Scott, if you can...
1: He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. the sick, he cleans the lepers, he forgives sinners, he discharges debtors, he delivers the captive, he defends the feeble, he blesses the young, he serves the unfortunate, he regards the age, he rewards the diligent, and he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him, he's a key to knowledge, he's a well And a yoke is easy, and it burns is lighter. I wish I could describe him for you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You see, you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees. They found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Terror couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him.
0: Yeah. That's my king. That's my king. That's my king. And he's yours too if you believe in him. Let's pray. We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.